are listening to the Sioux Falls Startup Stories Podcast. On today's podcast, I had the awesome pleasure of sitting down with John Meyer. John is the co-founder and CEO of a local company known as Lemonly. If you haven't heard of them, you've likely seen their work. John and his team have worked with brands like Huggies, Samsung, Marriott Hotel, Lego, and even the Major Baseball League. John has dedicated a fair amount of time to the local entrepreneurial community. I would say I was excited he agreed to be on the podcast, except it was kind of his idea in the first place. To hear about how this project got started, go back and check out our intro episode, episode zero. But for now, I talked to John about his background and his journey to starting a company. Yeah, so... Like you, I grew up in Brookings, go Bobcats. I went to a small school in Northeast Iowa called Luther College, and I decided to major in communication studies, which basically means I have no idea what I want to do. But in high school, I did a lot of things from debate to oral interp to um, improv, choir, theater. I played sports as well, but I think a lot of those experiences Uh, I had to get in front of people, I had to talk, I had to work in groups of people, teams, obviously in sports as well. And so I decided I'm going to be a communication major because I'm good at that stuff and maybe it'll be easy. (laughs) Um, And what was, what's funny when you go to a liberal arts school and major in communications, I can't go back and like point to these are the five things I learned and start listing them off. Instead, I look back and say, well, I I wrote a lot of papers, I had to give a lot of presentations and I had to work in, in a lot of group, on group projects. And now I look at what I do today at Lemonly, and every day I write and work with groups of people and give presentations. And so it actually turned out to work out okay. John graduated with a degree in communications, and after a few rounds of interviews, he ended up working as a consultant for a company up in the Twin Cities. He says his job wasn't all bad. He was making decent money as a 23-year-old kid. He was blogging about the Minnesota Twins, and his brother Scott was working overseas using new technology like Skype to communicate in real time. Remember, this was 2007. He attributes these early days of using technology to the success of starting their first company, Nine Clouds, and then eventually, Lemonly. He tells me it was a diverse office environment, working with various ages, genders, and race. And working for a very corporate business gave John a good perspective on what Lemonly does today. Even though his company isn't corporate, they work with brands who are, so it helps to have an understanding and empathy to how they operate. So when you were in that job like i mean you you recognized pretty early it wasn't awesome when did did you like when you called your dad and you said hey you know i don't think this is for me did you have like in the back of your mind what was next like were you already starting to think the business mindset or you were just thinking like gosh i need to find another job like what was that sort of like in your brain at that time the summer after my junior year at luther i stayed in decora and worked for an entrepreneur um that spring semester of my junior he came and I took entrepreneurship, which if anyone's listening to this, if you have any young listeners, I actually think I would strongly encourage, or parents maybe, to actually discourage your kids from being an entrepreneurship major. Like I took the class, which was good, because I didn't know what that meant and that, what that word even was. But learn, to me, learning, like majoring in entrepreneurship is kind of a joke, really. Uh, the best way to do it is to just, to learn it, is just to do it. Um, so get more of a tactical, like economics or graphic design or computer science or philosophy, anything that interests you, history, honestly, um, and, and then learn the business stuff, the entre- entrepreneurship stuff as you go. But the best thing about that class is, is the professor brought in local entrepreneurs, and this guy came in and spoke 
he was a one-man band. He was doing at that time, 2006, seven maybe, um, like Google AdWords, and so a little bit of SEO work, but maybe Google 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 AdWords, and that, and he spoke, and he, it was just fascinating to me that he kind of, sometimes he worked from home, and sometimes he worked at the office, and sometimes he traveled, and he. He made his own hours and this whole idea of an entrepreneur just kind of blew my mind. And so I walked up to him after class and I said, hey, uh, have you ever considered having an intern? And he said, meet me tomorrow at Bookends and Beans, which is the local coffee shop in Decorah. And, and, I, and I said, okay. And I thought I was going for an interview. So I like put on a suit and tie. I had like the leather bound, like, you know, Luther College folder that had like my resume and said what I was majoring in and my experiences. And I was ready to be the, this formal interview. And I show, show up and Jason was like, okay, so first you're gonna do this and then you're gonna do, I'm gonna teach you how to do it. And he just gave me the job. And I remember being like, don't you, don't you need to see if I'm you know, crazy or capable or, um, and so I always, I still keep in touch with him. And I tell him like, you believed in me uh, and gave me a chance. And so the lesson there, you'll never know if you don't ask, right? I mean, probably 28 kids in that class, 27 of them just walked out of the door when the bell rang. And I walked up and just said, have you ever considered having an intern? In short, John had been exposed to the life of entrepreneurship late in college. Even though he ended up taking the route of corporate America initially, this idea of working for yourself and being an entrepreneur never really left him. But starting a business is a scary endeavor. John and his brother were applying for a grant, and that meant leaving the safety of a guaranteed paycheck. So you mentioned that you had a pretty good salary. You know, you're 23 years old, you've got things are going well, like sure. in turn, I mean, the job's not awesome, but things are going well otherwise. Kind of go through the process of what you were thinking when you applied for this grant mm -hmm. to start this business, you and your brother, and like the insecurity of, I'm gonna quit my job, you know, move back home, I've got this, you know, startup grant money, but other than that, there's nothing, there's yeah. no security, yeah. you know, what was that, what was that like? Yeah, so the first thing I did, because I, I still did grow up in a fairly, probably, conservative household or like certainly my parents wanted the best for me but wanted me to be smart and take care of myself and so yeah 23 newly 23 22 I was making $50,000 salary as a single guy in Minneapolis um, and applied for this grant and I do remember I convinced Accenture I said could you give me 90 days like a 90 day kind of leave of absence that if this if, if I don't like this whole thing um, I can come back and surprisingly they said yes you know like Everybody knows the cost of hiring and training and recruiting talent. And so thankfully they saw enough in me where they said, yeah, we'll give you 90 days. But when I left the, the door that, that day in May, I was like, there's no way I'm coming back. Right. And it was, that was served as motivation to, to, to Scott and I, like, we got to make this thing work. At this point, the background noise gets a little distracting. It's lunchtime at the office and we decided to record the podcast upstairs in the foyer. I'm still pretty new at this. So a little grace, I'll get better. I promise. Even though anyone who's starting a company knows that you can't answer that question in 90 days. That wasn't enough time. Like at day 89, when I told them, you know, I'm not coming back, um, Nine Clouds was still very much on shaky ground. Um, and so I do think, you know, that I think I went from that first year at Accenture making 50K, and I think that first year at Nine Clouds, I made like 22. John admits he had pretty low risk going into it. At the time, he didn't have kids, a mortgage, or many of the other challenges that might stop some from going into business but he offers a good perspective to those on the fence. I think a lot of people challenge who people who maybe are listening to this feel like, well, I'm gonna start a company once the time is right, or once the bank account, or once the kids are a little bit older. 
I think all those things are smart things to consider, but there will never be enough in the bank account and the time will never feel quite right. Um, and so you do eventually at some point just have to jump. So we're going to, we're going to kind of jump into like success and defining success, right? Cause a lot of people look at, you know, John Meyer and Lemon Lee, like this is a successful company. Did you have a point, whether it be when you started nine clouds or, or Lemon Lee that you felt like what you were working for was going to be successful? Did you sort of define success as such and such? And maybe, you know, how has that morphed over time into where you are today? Like what does success look like? now from where it did when you first got started in Lemonly? I think that's a great question. And I think it's one that entrepreneurs struggle with because success is measured in a lot of ways. Like I remember in 2010, um, I was in the, the Bloomberg Business Week's like top 25 entrepreneurs under 25 and Nine Clouds was like two years old. I bet I made like, and not that, and that's the problem is like, you go to money as like a, as a metric because it's easy to track, right? I maybe made like, 35 or 40 grand that year, I don't remember. Um, and so, but they was, we were recognized by a magazine. And, and, and so like, certainly I, that was not success, like a certain uh, dollar amount to me was not success. I think when I look back or, or even look today, I, I mean, I think we're still grinding and still learning. Um, but when I walk into an office and see, and not that even an office space is success, but really the people to me is, is kind of how I have measured success. So I remember the first time even walking into our Ethan Railroad space and the fact that two other people from Nine Clouds trusted us to show up to work every day, that we would uh, continue to give them a paycheck and um, you know that they believed in us. Like that to me was kind of mind blowing. Um, and also that's when the, the stakes started to change too. We talked about being just Scott and I in our apartment. It was like, well, if we fail, just it's on our own account and we move yeah. on and and even when it was just a couple 20 somethings i mean now it's 20 people and husbands and wives and i think maybe 10 kids or so in, in the lemonly family um so that's that changes the stakes but also that's the most rewarding by far in my opinion that we've created a place where hopefully 20 people come and whether it's monday or friday they're excited to come to work um, and so I, I measure success that way um, and that's created that perspective, I think, has created some new goals too. We've we've tried to use Lemonly as a platform to talk about culture and 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 what making a people first company means and, and how to create a blueprint for other people to do that. Um, and so it's interesting how success also shapes your career, right? Like you make decisions based on how you measure success. And so I think your question is a good question. Entrepreneurs need to define what that means to them. I like John's answer. In my conversations with people thinking about starting a business, success is so often defined with a dollar amount. I'm guilty of it myself. Even though money or magazine articles aren't bad definitions of success, keeping a people-focused company as a measure of success is really valuable. Today's podcast is brought to you by Web Laboratory. The average business owner spends up to 100 hours putting together their company website. Imagine 100 hours of new sales, new product research, customer experience, even 100 hours of Netflix. The possibilities are endless. But even more frustrating than the time that goes into building a website is the frustration of it not converting your visitors to customers. Web Laboratory meets the needs of small business owners to provide an easy, affordable, custom solution for your website. We listen to your needs and evaluate your budget to find a solution that works for you. 
Now you can get back to what you really want to do, run your business, or watch Netflix if that's your thing. Visit us online at weblaboratory.us. Yeah, we know it's not a .com, weblaboratory.us. Or find us on Facebook at We Are Web Laboratory. Was there, and this might be a tough question, but was there ever a point in your business that things maybe weren't going awesome and you felt like you can't like move on, like this is it, we're probably just gonna shut up shop. And, and maybe that never really happened, but you know, every entrepreneur is like, yeah, I, don't, oh, yeah. I don't know if I can do this next month. Like, sure, we should yeah. probably just think about like, what would it be like if we were to shut down? Was there a point or an experience that you can talk about? Um, we definitely had moments at Nine Clouds where it was like, are we gonna make the next month? Like, are we gonna pay the bills? Um, and I think some of those experiences shaped the way we grew Lemonly, because um, it had some battle scars. And so maybe a little bit more managed growth or a little bit, let's, let's use a freelancer this month or let's wait and see how, how um, the year ends before we make this large decision. So we probably paid it a little bit more cautiously, but, um, but even at Lemonly, you're right, the roller coaster exists forever. I mean, we had a client in uh, early 2016, so about a year and a half ago, um, they ended up being about 39% of our business uh, in a good way. They kept growing and growing and asking for more work and loved our services. Um, and, I, and I noticed that. I looked at that and that made me a little nervous. It was like a lot of, it was one big egg in our basket. And I always kind of thought, well, it's okay. As long as we grow the other eggs and kind of dilute it, um, we'll be fine. And we just ran out of time. And, and they had a big, um, they were... Uh, order from corporate to make significant budget cuts. And so about 90% of the business they did with us disappeared. And when 90% of 39%, that's a large amount. And so it certainly wasn't, and probably because of, like I said, the nine clause decisions, we maybe ran it a little bit more cautiously, had some extra funds in the bank. No one, no one got let go or anything like that. Um, but that shaped, that, yeah, that was, I didn't want to quit, but it, was, it definitely takes the wind out of your sails a little sure. bit. And I, I would imagine, let's see, I'm an eight-year entrepreneur now, but if you talk to someone who is 18 or 28, I think they would say the same, that they still are having those type of days. So imposter syndrome yeah. is, is a pretty real thing. Uh, so, you know, it's the example of, you know, who am I to be running this business? I'm nobody. Like, who am I to be in charge of these people? Have you experienced that? And, like, how have you maybe overcome some of that? Because that can be a daily thing. True. Yep. Uh, I think the way I've experienced it the most significantly is I own a design company, and I don't know how to use Photoshop or <laughs> Illustrator. Uh, I took one class the semester I studied abroad in Switzerland. And I can say that classes probably were not my priority that semester. But I did take a graphic design course. So I've at least used the programs. Um, but... I think in the early years, I used to kind of pretend that yeah, I know a little bit about design or I'm pretty dangerous with like a pencil and paper. Um, but now I've more embraced the fact that that's, that's Amy and that's, that's why I have a co-founder and that's her, her job is to make sure that all this beautiful storytelling is in fact beautiful and that our team is growing and learning. And, um, but for years and before that, I was kind of like, did we just get lucky or did, you know, did I just find the right person or what value do I bring? I'm more of like the communication, vision, storytelling, sales, like community person, how to, you know, is that actually worth anything or is that skill set a, a dime a dozen? And so I think you do go through that and you have to be realistic about strengths and weaknesses. I'm big on punting on your weaknesses and really doubling down on your strengths. And that's one reason I like growing a team because I feel like we can put people in spots where they're going to thrive and yeah. succeed. Um, and I don't have to try to do everything. 
because um, there was a time when I balanced the books, right? And we were always months behind on reconciling the books. <laughs> and then you bite the bullet and say, you know, we should maybe hire a out, like our outsource accountant. And, and then you do it and you're like, why did I not do this before? Right? This is the smartest thing I ever did. Um, so yeah, imposter syndrome is, is very real. I don't think it goes away, but I think when you really hone in, and there's even great ways to do this. I mean, I'm, we did, the whole company recently did the Gallup um, Strengths Finder mm -hmm. book, which I recommend as a way to like really hone in on, on, where, on what your strengths are. Um, and just recognizing, like accepting and recognizing that there's a value to those strengths, right? So even if you're, if you're within a team and or organization, or you're at going out on your own, you know, most people never like charge enough for their services, you know, and believe enough in themselves and recognizing the value and what you can bring to the table. Um, that'll help you get over that imposter syndrome. Did, did you ever have that when you were like securing a client for the first time, you know, and you're making the sales pitch, right? Like you put on, at least I've gone through this, you put on a false bravado, yeah. like, oh, I'm your guy. Yeah. In the back of your head, you're saying, I have no yeah, totally. idea. Yeah. I have no, if you only knew what I knew, you wouldn't hire me. Yeah. And I recently heard a story of a guy who, every time he writes a, he's a freelance developer, and every time he writes a contract or proposal, he puts something in that contract with the client, uh, you know, a widget or a, a feature or an app or some sort of thing in that website that he doesn't know how to do. And the reason is, is so that he then has to teach himself as a way of almost like pushing and motivating personal development, professional development. I thought that was interesting, but oh, totally. There's been times where it's sign the contract, figure it out later. And I remember being out at, uh, um, not at Ethan Railroad, at Zeal, at then, what, what then was SDTBC. And someone told me, you know, I think they gave us advice, like take, take whatever you're charging now and double it. Or like another one that I've heard is, is once you start to feel uncomfortable kind of throwing that number out to a client, um, that's where you should start. And, that's, and I think that's interesting because the point in that lesson is not to like price gouge or just try to get every, you know, the point is to offer value and recognizing your value and usually we sell ourselves short. And so, um, yeah, there's so many good little lessons like that along the way that you pick up. And uh, I mean, the way that we since have like we log time now at Lemonly and try to figure out how much effort goes into our projects. But our pricing is strictly like, we kept raising it until people said no, you know, and then we would stop. And then when people started you know, saying yes for a while, we'd raise it again. Um, and we try to keep tabs on what maybe the industry or marketplace is doing, but it's a nice round project number, which is how we bill. We don't do it by hour. Um, and honestly, the price is just based on when people say yes and no. At this point, John really hasn't answered my question. So I had to pry a little bit harder. What's it like going to a client with prices twice as high? Honestly, I think it's exciting, right? I think it's, um, it's not, there's a little bit of that, like, I hope I don't look like an amateur because sometimes <laughs> I maybe feel like it. But I think it's exciting when you've decided, no, like, we're really good at this. Um, you know, it says on our, our door at Lemonly, like, home of the world's best infographics, which is part of an, a hat nod to, to our state of South Dakota and all these little towns that are home of the world's biggest or brightest or smallest or largest. Um, but also it's, it's a mantra almost that everyone who walks in those doors every day sees that and believes it to get over that imposter syndrome, right? And so when you put that proposal out, I think it's really exciting. You have to, I think someone told me in sales, you have, you know, we all wanna get yeses, right? So the yeses will make you money, but the noes will actually save you money. 
it's, it's the maybes that you need to watch out for because the maybes, and this is obviously we're in a services business, but you're chasing these leads and you know, maybe next quarter, maybe next year, come back to me and we're just not quite right timing. You can waste so much time and effort chasing those. We all hear about the term work-life balance. There's countless books and programs to address this issue alone. So how do you start, own, and operate a business and maintain a work-life balance? Simple. You don't. Yeah, I think I've gone both ways. I, I think I was at the Chamber at the Crossroads event. I think it was the guy from um, the t-shirt company. What's it called? I don't remember now, but Bert was his name. He talked, and I really like this idea. He said he doesn't believe in work-life balance, right? It's like work-life I've heard the term integration or this idea that work is actually a part of our life. You know, work-life balance it assumes like this, um, this, this level or this like little, like literally the scale where they, they even, you know, when one gets out of whack, we try to compensate. But like work is, is a part of the greater game here of life. And so I, I really believe in that. Um, and so really if you're not focusing on life, everything from fitness, family, faith of some sort, whatever you choose to subscribe to. Um, I think you need all that before you can even focus on doing good work. Um, so as far as examples, I think I've had both. I think um, probably prior to my, prior to meeting my, my now wife Paige, you know, in a, in a previous relationship, I probably w I cared too much about work uh, and, and that probably fizzled out because of that. Now, that turned out to be okay because I ended up meeting my wife later, which was, so I think a lot of things happen for a reason and timing is huge. Um, but even to your point, I think I've gone the other way times so where I'm, I've been, um, you know, removed from work and sometimes, uh, but I think that's actually a really good test for entrepreneurs. If you're building a team and you want to build a company, you know, there's a reason we didn't call it like Meyer or Colgan design or infograph, you know, it, it's lemonly because it's bigger than either one of us or, and always will be. And so I remember when we took it, like the first time, I think when I got married about four years ago, we took a 10 day honeymoon and that was like the first big test for me to be away. And it was nerve wracking and of course nothing happened and everything was fine and they were just great and probably maybe even went better. And I think you need to, if, I think a lot of people say that they have that, but then, never, but then they take that road trip with their family and they're constantly checking email or Slack or, you know, making phone calls. And, and that's not, whether you want to call it integration or work-life balance, that is not balance. Um, and I think we all could use a little bit of that from turning off our phone, disconnecting and really, I think one of the things someone told me, a CEO, they're like, you need to be going to the lake or into the woods or, or like shut, you know, go, go shut off for a day and just go think. And I was like, that, it was so hard for me and I'm still working on that because it, it just, it feels unproductive, even though it turns out it's probably the most productive thing you can do. But when you're in the checklist, email inbox, like check, 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 cross, cross, cross mentality, it, it nothing, it just doesn't feel like a good use of your time. But you know, that's obviously, as we know, can be a rat race where you just always, you live your life by whatever your inbox says. The fear of failure is something that I thought every entrepreneur faced. But talking to John, I'm starting to realize that that's maybe not the case. I think one of the things that in my DNA that I didn't probably appreciate when I was younger that now I can appreciate is that I don't know when I'm in a room that I'm not supposed to be in. Like meaning, uh, so I'm a big baseball fan. I love the twins. Um, in seventh grade, I quit playing baseball um, because, 
you know, sports were getting to the point where you had to play like more like year round sports or even at least a club soccer. I was a big soccer person and baseball, but all my friends played soccer. And so I decided to play soccer. And so I quit baseball because the social aspect of that was not as interesting to me, even though I loved the game. And so, you know, I quit baseball at seventh grade. Kids are probably pitching, I don't know, 55 miles an hour or something like that. And when I went to college at Luther, which is a D3 school, um, I decided to try to walk onto the baseball team. And then the guys were pitching 85 and curveballs and sliders. And, um, and that was a room that I probably should not have been in. Now that story doesn't, like, there isn't some happy ending where I like, be, made, the te- like, made the team and became some all-American baseball player. I did it for one year, uh, but because it was a D3 school, like, it was a place where I could try and I got to like, go through practices and everything like that. Um, and so the lesson I think is I'm, just, I'm not afraid to put myself in a, in a, in a position to fail. Uh, the failure doesn't bother me. Failure doesn't bother John. It's built in his DNA. I have a hard time wrapping my head around this concept, but yet here he is telling me he's not afraid to fail at all. As we wrapped up our conversation, I couldn't help but realize that John is the opposite of what many would call risk averse. He's not afraid to put himself out there and to try new ideas and take on challenges. He told me about various projects that weren't exactly big wins for Lemonly, but he doesn't view them as failures either. It's rather inspiring. One thing we tried a few years ago, we hired a, a mobile developer. This is back at Lemonly, probably 2013. We built a productivity app that was featured in, you know, on iTunes, and it got probably like 12 or 13,000 downloads, and it was like a 99-cent app. And we experimented doing it free. We did it paid. We we, made, we, we iterated and made version 2.0, and um, we had some really loyal fans, and some people hated it. And you know, there was a lot, but. Uh, uh, Lemonly is not a mobile company. Maybe I thought maybe we'd spin it off, spin it off, or do a new thing, or and and so that's like a failure that was very much like. I mean, I don't really look at it as a failure. It was very much kind of walled off and tried as like a project, like almost research and development. Um, and so if you, I look at it as like stacking experiences, right? So every time, good or bad, you try something, you learn from it, and and that's part of how we built the culture here. It was seriously an honor to have John Meyer as my first guest on the podcast. If you found value in the content of this episode, I have to ask that you share this with a friend and help spread the message of entrepreneurship in our community. Next week, I'll be chatting with Adam Huber of Adam Huber's Detailing. Um, So we're buying our first house, we're going to be starting a business, and then a week before we move down, the wife tells me that she's pregnant with our first kid. That's next week on Sea Falls Startup Stories.